This is Steve Becker. I was a district judge for 26 years in Reno County, Kansas. I served three terms in the Kansas legislature. This is Beth White. I worked for parole services for almost 10 years and am currently an Encanto aficionado. And this is cleared. I'm good. Um, I want to start off with apologizing that today, March 8th, we do not have a new podcast episode for you. Unfortunately, myself and my entire family contracted COVID last week, so me and all my kids were in quarantine. Including her father. Including my father. He also contracted COVID. Um, I will say that I think I now hold the world record for the amount of times watching the movie, the Disney movie, Encanto. So at least it wasn't entirely unproductive because now I have the world record for most times viewing Encanto. Great movie. Nothing to do with exonerations, but great movie. Well, and your daughter had a sleepover at my house last night. Yes. And that's what we did. Funny. I was not familiar with the movie. It's a good movie. (laughs) That was my first time watching the movie. I I can tell you, I think constantly in my head, the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, is just constantly going over and over. So hopefully I don't slip during the podcast and talk about Bruno. So instead of us having an episode, we posted on our social medias that we recommended a podcast called You're Wrong About, and the episode dealt with junk sciences. Both Dad and I listened to it, and we both thought it was very pertinent to what we talk about, and it was really informative. What did you think of that podcast? Yeah, we have mentioned junk science in a number of our previous episodes. And uh, yeah, I, I hope our listeners give that, uh, give that a listen. Um, it talks about different types of, um, of science that uh, is used in criminal prosecutions. It is testified to by experts that I'm using air quotes. Well, and it talks about how those experts' air quotes are made, too. Yes. It talks about how you become an expert, and, uh, and these things lead to wrongful convictions um, and how much credit, how much weight juries give thinking this is valid science presented by an expert when both of those things Aren't are not true. true. Yes. It's not, it's junk science. It's not valid science. It hasn't been established. And, uh, and like we have already implied the, uh, they're self-appointed, they're self-labeled uh, experts. Well, and I thought it was interesting, something you don't necessarily think too much about was when they were talking about breathalyzers and how inaccurate breathalyzers are. I have some experience with breathalyzers. We had them at parole. There was one in every office. Um, the people that I worked with primarily had drug issues, so I didn't have that much of an opportunity to use it. Um, The podcast talked about how important it is that a breathalyzer is calibrated correctly on the right schedule, that it's being operated and used by someone who is well-informed and knows the technique, and how rare that is for that to occur out in the real world. And something else they kind of brought up that really made me think and had a good conversation between you and I, Dad, dealing with how a breathalyzer doesn't determine a person's capability to operate a motor vehicle. 
Just because you blow a certain number, that doesn't automatically mean you are impaired. And how a lot of these DUI charges come out of DUI checkpoints, where they're not even observing erratic behavior, they're just having people tested. And that leads to conviction. So I, I, I thought that was very interesting. That's not something I've thought about. Yeah, and I presided over hundreds of DUI trials in my judicial career. And Kansas, and I think all the other states do too, I think it was... Um, the federal government uh, pushed us to do this to identify this level of 0.08. That is one of the definitions of driving under the influence. That's That alone defines driving under the influence. So if the state presents evidence that an intoxilizer was given and they lay the foundation uh, the prosecutor will lay the foundation for the intoxilizer results and talk about uh, calibration and things of this nature. But if it reads 0. .08 or above, it's a that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's the definition of DUI. And all this uh, extraneous explanations don't don't matter. Yeah. It's it's a done deal. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing I thought was really interesting that I think we've dealt with here on this podcast, just the cases we've talked about, was it talked about DNA evidence and how it can get diluted. Apparently, I can't remember the exact terminology, but there's single source DNA and then there's, I think it's called multi-source or dual source where there's more than one person's DNA mixed in the sample. And they talked about... When you have a mixed sample like that, and especially when you get multiple samples mixed together, how difficult it is for them to isolate individual DNA and to pull it out to test it, which is something, I mean, you would think, I mean, I know I've thought about, but I've never really sat down and wondered if they do it and how they do it. And apparently it's, it's a process and it's difficult. So that's interesting. If any of this stuff that we just talked about is interesting to you, again, we recommend the podcast name is You're Wrong About, and the episode deals with, I think it's called CSI Junk Science. So check that out. It's available on all platforms. So today, um, after we got done with our last, our last podcast talking with Jim McCloskey, I told him that I was interested in covering a case that Centurion Ministries, that's the ministries that he founded, um, had helped and asked if he had any suggestions on who we should cover. And he came back with Lamont McIntyre. For those of you that don't know, Dad and I are based in Hutchison, Kansas. And Lamont just happens to be in the Kansas City, Kansas area, the Wyandotte County area. So the crime was committed in the afternoon around 2 o'clock on April 15, 1994. There were two men in a parked Cadillac car having a conversation. A man dressed in black came up to the car, shot four shots into the vehicle, instantly killing 21-year-old Donnell Quinn, and the other victim, Donald Ewing, died just a few short hours later at the hospital. He was only 34 years old. Less than six hours later, the police already had identified a suspect, had arrested him and taken him into custody. Now, the place where this car was parked was in a residential neighborhood, so fortunately, there were a lot of eyewitnesses. Although, speaking of junk sciences, we've talked about eyewitness testimony, just as a little foreshadowing with that. The first eyewitnesses were Ruby Mitchell and Nico Quinn. Now, Nico Quinn may sound familiar because that is Donnell Quinn, the first victim, the 21-year-old. That's his cousin. Ruby Quinn, on the other hand, was living in a street or living across the street from where the crime took place, kind of catty corner from where, where the car was parked, where the men were killed. She was interviewed by police shortly after, less than an hour after the crime took place, and she said that she witnessed a man dressed all in black with slick back hair walk down the hill to the car. He was carrying a shotgun. He fired into the, sh- or into the car several times and then walked back up the hill. She was asked if he saw or hit the gunman's face, and she replied that all she saw that was that he was black-skinned. 
Within a few hours, she contacted detectives again, saying that she thinks she figured out who the gunman was. She thought it was a man named Lamonte. She knew Lamonte because she had been because Lamonte had dated her niece. Detective Golubsky, you'll remember him, I'm sure, picked up Ruby, took her to the police station, and helped her or had her work with a sketch artist to make a sketch of the perpetrator and then showed her a series, an array of five photos. In that photo array was Lamonte McIntyre, his brother, his cousin, and two other young black men. Now, Lamonte McIntyre was in that lineup because when she said Lamonte, the police immediately thought it was Lamonte McIntyre when she was referring to someone named Lamonte Drain. So it wasn't even the same guy that she was talking about. Also, none of the men in the photo lineup that they showed her had the slicked back hair. Despite all of this, Ruby identified Lamonte McIntyre as the gunman. The second eyewitness was Nico Quinn. Remember, this is the cousin of Donnell Quinn. He was a victim in the crime. Police interviewed her multiple times. The first time again, just less than an hour after the crime had taken place. Now, she was walking to her mom's house, which was on the other side of Ruby's house. So she was walking past Ruby's house and was at a tree in her yard when the crime took place. She again testified that she saw a man dressed in black walk up to the parked car, shoot the victims, and walk back up towards the hill. Again, standing in a tree, by a tree in Ruby's yard. The next day, detectives showed her that same array of photo lineup, and she again thought maybe it might be Lamont McIntyre, but she couldn't be for sure. There were also two other eyewitnesses, Josephine and Stacy. Stacy Quinn was also, again, another cousin of the deceased, of the victim. And Stacy had the best view. Stacy and her mom, Josephine, their house was directly across, directly across the street where the crime took place. Stacy had walked outside moments before the gunfire had taken place. She saw the gunman walk up towards the car, fire shots into the car, and leave. She had told her mom during this to get down because she saw the gun, and she recognized the car, and she immediately knew that Donnell was in the car and yelled to her mom, it's Donnell, it's little Don, call 911. So they're the ones that made the call to 911. Detective Golubsky showed the photo lineup to Josephine the next day. Josephine couldn't identify anybody as as the perpetrator in the lineup, but she did tell Golubsky Hey, my daughter knows who the shooter is. She'll be able to tell you. So, going back to Lamont, unfortunately for Lamont, he lived just a mile away from the crime scene. His parents were with him. His mom and him went home, and they saw a card from a KCK detective on their door. Lamont picked up the card and called them multiple times, trying to get the detective to answer because he didn't know what what they wanted from him. And keep in mind, he's only 17 years old at this point. He told his mom, the mom said, hey, why don't we just go down to the police station and figure out what they want? So they get in the car and they start to head to the police station. On their way there, they see a Kansas City cop police cruiser parked in a restaurant parking lot. They said, instead of going all the way down to the police station, let's just stop and talk to this policeman and tell him. So that's what they did. They tell the police officer, hey, my son got this card from a KCK detective in our door at our house. Apparently they want to talk to him. And within minutes, the restaurant parking lot was flooded with police. They are both being searched for weapons. Lamont was taken with the detectives, and they told his mom, Rosie, just 15 minutes, we're going to take him downtown, 15 minutes, you can come pick him up. We just have a couple questions for him. So Rosie thinks, okay, 15 minutes, they're detectives, you know, they're not going to lie to me. So she waits 15 minutes, and she heads downtown to pick up her son, her 17-year-old son. She gets to the police station, she walks in, and she passes her son in handcuffs, sobbing. His only words saying to his mom, Mama, they're charging me with two counts of murder. So, that's all the police needed to arrest and charge Lamont. There was no physical evidence tying him to the crime. 
There was no evidence that he even knew the victims, which, spoiler alert, he did not know them. It was just these two eyewitnesses. And keep in mind, Stacy and Josephine, Stacy wasn't ever interviewed, and Josephine said that there was no one in that photo lineup, including Lamont, that was the gunman. So we're only with those two original, Nico and Ruby, that were across the street. You know, that's that's scary right there. Let me, I'll just interject that. I would I would hope if I would ever be allowed to serve on a jury, I would hope if a case like this would be presented to me, I would think there's got to be more. Yeah. There's got to be more. Yeah. Bring in the gun. Bring in bring in evidence, uh, forensics. That's that's what I want to hear rather than um, eyewitness identification. Um, and I know a lot of cases are based on all those things, you know, all those things in one case. You know, you have an eyewitness identification, you have forensics to back it up and uh, other things as well. But, but man, when a case goes to a jury and all there is is eyewitness identification, um, and I'm sure the, the eyewitness who didn't identify anyone in the lineup, was did she testify at the trial? Can you see into the future? Or I guess it's the past. No, she did not. And it's funny you mention evidence because they arrested, detained, questioned, however you want to word it, Lamont, just several hours after the crime had taken place. They were able to recover shotgun shells from the scene of the crime that they did not test in any way. They didn't test for fingerprints. They didn't test any anything about it. And all of the witnesses say that the gunman stood right next to the car window when he fired the shots through the glass window and killing both people. So it was very, very close proximity. If they If they had Lamont, there would for sure be gunshot residue on him. There would for sure be blood splatter all over him. But his clothes weren't taken and they weren't processed. Nothing was done. Nothing like that was done. They relied solely on this t- eyewitness, air quote, testimony. And they identified their suspect quickly based upon a first name. Yeah, and a wrong last name. The, yeah. yeah, and they, on a first name... They identified their victim. No, they identified their perpetrator, and they didn't they need to it. look any further. Yeah. Beth, and, they and the witnesses they had the guy. The witnesses that didn't line up with it, even though they were the closest ones viewing it, weren't their testimony wasn't even brought into play. They were just disregarded. In fact, Josephine, the one that could not identify him as the as the perpetrator showed up to court on the at the courthouse that day thinking they're going to need my testimony so she showed up she was told by prosecutor Tara Moorhead we don't need you go home and that's what she did she saw Lamont McIntyre in the courtroom and the next day it bothered her so much she called the prosecutor and said hey I saw Lamont McIntyre is he the one that's being accused the prosecutor said, yes, he is. And she said, that is not him. That's not the guy. That's not the gunman. I'm telling you, that's not the gunman. To her response, the prosecutor said, well, it's in the jury's hands now. And of course, this was immediately, immediately made known to defense counsel. No. No. What is that it's called a, again? What's that thing? exculpatory evidence. Brady? They are is that a Brady violation? If their investigation reveals any any evidence that would not only support the defendant's position but help him in any way, they are required to provide it to him. Yep. Well, it sure seems from what we're learning, all the research we've done, that sure doesn't happen very often, at least in the cases we cover. So at the trial, Ruby, the woman standing on her porch at her front door testifies that it's Lamont McIntyre. Nico Quinn gets there. She sees Lamont and she, keep in mind, she's never seen him in person. She just saw the photo lineup. She tells prosecutor Moorhead, Hey, that's not the guy. That's not the guy that committed these crimes. 
to what she is told. You are either going to testify that it's Lamont McIntyre and follow through with your testimony, or I will have you arrested and I will have your kids taken by the prosecutor. So not, not very good options for her. She decided to go ahead and testify that it was Lamont knowing full well, the prosecutor knowing full well that that was false testimony. Um, and again, was the defense made aware that she recanted pre even testifying at the trial? No, no, they weren't. We talked about Stacy. Um, she was the one, she was the witness that had the closest view of the gunman when the whole incident was taking place. She also did not testify at trial. Um, and she was listed as not available on the witness list. So we'll get into that here in a second too. So three day trial, no physical evidence, nothing tying Lamont to the crime, nothing tying Lamont to the victims, no even possible information that they were even knew of each other or aware of each other, nothing. And he, in three days, the trial goes to jury. They find him, keep in mind, 17 again, tried as an adult. They find him guilty on both first degree murder charges and order him to two consecutive life sentences. So again, all on only eyewitness testimony. So less than a year after he was convicted, uh, Stacy Quinn, that is the victim's cousin, the one that didn't testify. She came forward saying that's not Lamont's, not the shooter. That's not the one. Um, police never interviewed her. When there's a funny tie with Lamont, I told you about detective Glubsky. Do you remember? He was one of the ones investigating. Um, he's the one that took Ruby to the police station to meet with the sketch artist. Well, he was having, a sexual relationship with Stacy for several years with who with Stacy, the witness in the crime, the one that said it wasn't Lamont, the one that had the closest view of the crime. She was having a sexual relationship with this detective. Not that anybody knew that at the time. So less than a year later, she comes out saying it was not Lamont, hundred percent, not Lamont during the same time frame, Nico, She's the one that was told you either testify or you get arrested and lose your kids. She came out with a sworn affidavit saying that she was coerced into this testimony, told them about the prosecutor telling her, giving her the threat, essentially testify, get arrested, testify or get arrested and lose your kids. Um, and both of them say that Lamont was too tall his face was too long. He was his skin was darker than the gunman. His I mean, all these physical characteristics that just did not match up at all with the actual gunman of the crime. There was an evidentiary hearing based on this in 1996. Uh, Judge J. Dexter Burdett declined to give Lamont a new trial and dismiss both of the testimony. Uh, he dismissed Stacy's testimony, saying that she was unreliable because she was a drug user and that Nico's recantation had no credibility whatsoever. So Lamont was convicted in 94, 96. He gets this new trial based on Stacy coming forward and Nico recanting and is denied. So 96, that's just two years in. So during this time, Lamont has been writing to anybody that could help because he's innocent. He knows he's innocent. He's a boy. He's 17 years old. And he's writing to none other than the wonderful Jim McCleskey at Centurion Ministries. I think they said that he wrote Centurion Ministries for several years. Once Centurion got involved, they were unable to uncover a whole slew of issues and new evidence with the case. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that before we get into his exoneration. So we talked about the four eyewitnesses, correct? There's Ruby in her house. There's Nico behind a tree. There's Stacy, the cousin, immediately across the street, the one that's having a sexual relationship with the detective. And there's Stacy's mom, Josephine, who didn't necessarily see the crime take place, but knew it wasn't Lamonte. Lamont, excuse me. So let's start with Ruby. So Ruby, again, she gave them that first initial statement less than an hour after the crime took place. And this is based on information that was gathered 
I don't even know, probably hundreds of hours worth of interviews that Jim and his team did with everybody involved. Once Centurion Ministries got involved in the Mons case, they reinvestigated the entire, I don't know if it's even appropriate to say reinvestigated, because it definitely doesn't sound like much investigation was done in the first place. So we'll just say they investigated the case all over again. And this is all the information they were able to uncover. So Ruby Mitchell, she called saying, hey, it's Lamont after being interviewed by detectives that day. He dated my he dated my niece. So, dete- or, yeah, Detective Golubsky drives to her house to pick her up to take her to the station. While she is in the car with the le- Detective Golubsky, let me get the exact wording that she used because it's just awful. Um, she was making him. He was making her feel nervous, saying that he liked to date black women, and would she ever date a white man? Making her feeling very uncomfortable. Making she said that it made her feel like he was trying to solicit her into some sort of sexual act, and then try and charge her with something. She was extremely uncomfortable, and this is just on the way to meet the sketch artist. She was feeling uncomfortable by this detective, the same detective that's having sexual relations with the other witness. Keep in mind. So that's happening to Ruby during all of this. None of that, of course, was made aware to the defense. So initially, Ruby said that when asked if she could see the assailant's face, that he was light brown or dark, excuse me, brown skinned and didn't say anything about seeing his face. Of course, by the time trial came around, oh, I definitely saw his face. It was Lamont McIntyre. So when they went out to the crime scene, they determined that Ruby's house was a hundred yards away from where the crime took place. A hundred yards. Ruby was standing behind a screen door in a screened porch. So she was looking through not one screen door, two screen doors and a hundred yards away. And sounds she, like a sound bite out of my cousin Vinny <laughs> and the axle on the tires. No, <laughs> So obviously that's probably not a pretty good advantage to see a face and be able to know it well enough to put somebody's life on the line. So there's problems with her testimony as far as being an eyewitness. Now we get to Nico. We already know all about Nico. What we don't know is that initially the following day when she was shown those six photos, the photo lineup at her house, and she said she thinks maybe it was a month. She didn't know for sure. She was told by the detectives that they had arrested Lamont and had the shotgun, that they found the shotgun on Lamont, and they had already arrested him, reassuring her that, yeah, it is Lamont, and that he's obviously guilty because we have the shotgun. They did not have the shotgun. So I think Jim talked about that too, about the availability to mislead people. You're being kind. (laughs) You're being kind. Mislead. So... There's that. So also when Centurion interviewed Nico, she told them, the police detectives at the time, that there was reason to believe that a nearby drug dealer had a motive to harm Donnell and that he had been recently beaten up by enforcers from this drug dealer, which was even noted on Donnell's autopsy, the bruises and contusions from this beating he incurred from the drug dealers. That was never followed up with. So then we get to Stacy. Obviously, Josephine just knows that she didn't see who it was, or she she wasn't able to pick out any of the people and identify the Lamont, obviously, as the gunman. And she knew and told detectives at the time that her daughter, Stacy, knew the gunman, which to our knowledge wasn't followed up with. But however, Stacy was in that relationship with the detective Golubsky. Stacy didn't testify in the first hearing. She did testify at that second hearing we talked about that he was given in 96, but her testimony was viewed as non-credible because she was a drug user. But she spoke with Centurion and said that the perpetrator of the crime was someone named Monster and that he's the one that killed her cousin and Donald. So just another reason why... What's the right word? Not obsessed. 
how in awe I am of Jim McCleskey, Stacy gives him the name Cecile Brooks. He goes to prison and interviews Cecile Brooks. Cecile Brooks admits to Jim that he hired this person named Monster to kill Donnell Quinn. He has a written testimony saying he's the one that hired it, gives all the logistics behind the crime, who did it, who was the driver, what the car was, and this was all over Donnell stealing drugs from this local drug dealer. So Jim McCloskey solved the crime. Yes, yes. He, on his own, went and got this interview, got the sworn testimony from this Cecil Brooks fingering the guy that actually did it and Cecil admitting that he's the one who paid for it. Five, $500, let me just say. It was $500. So was, law enforcement immediately follows up on McCloskey. No. If only. So all of this that I just talked about, what Centurion did, all of the new testimony they were able to get, all of the new evidence they got, this whole process took almost seven, ten years. I mean, it, this isn't something that occurred overnight. It was a long process. And we, I think we talked about it. Jim's method is he really forms relationships with the people involved in the cases. So it's not like he meets this person first time and they just willingly give him this information. It's months and months and sometimes even years of forming these relationships that they feel comfortable confiding this information into him. So Centurion's involved. They work almost a decade getting all this information. Um, they hire a local attorney named Cheryl Pilot who teamed up with a retired police detective again doing more research and more investigation. Uh, Midwest Innocence Project also became involved in it. I love Midwest Innocence Project as well. So all of this came to fruition in June 2016 when the new attorney, Cheryl, filed um, filed a request for them to review his thing, get a new trial with over 100 pages supported by 40 sworn statements of new testimony, completely laying out all of the prosecutorial misconduct, all the policeman contact, and really showing Lamont's innocence. The trial, or excuse me, the hearing was originally set for October 12th of the following year. Um, another little interesting tidbit going in with this case is that the prosecutor that was prosecuting Lamont just so happened to have been in a romantic relationship with the judge presiding over the case. They weren't in a relationship when the trial took place. It had been a couple years before. It was a couple-year relationship that had ended. This was not disclosed to defense either. So the hearing's in October. They're getting all their testimony out. They're calling witnesses. And they take a break for lunch. The next thing they're going to do after lunch is bring this judge up so he can talk about his romantic relationship with the prosecutor. So they're reconvened after lunch. The DA at the time stands up and asks to vacate McIntyre's conviction. Just out of the blue. Vacate and dismiss all charges. The judge grants it and dismisses all the charges. So the judge did not have to testify towards his romantic relationship with the prosecutor. Interesting timing on that. In all, Lamont spent 23 years in prison for a time he did not commit. He was 17 years old, had aspirations of being a comedian, always known for the smile on his face when he went in, and he left prison a 41-year-old no work history, no social security, no education. I should take that back. He did uh, receive barbering education and an associate's degree when he was incarcerated. Uh, no kids, no wife, nothing is what he came out with. I was going to say, Beth, that's so sad. No, it's so far beyond sad. Yeah. It's horrid. Yep. Um, so he dismisses the charges. He walks outside of the courthouse for the first time as a free man, hugs his mom for the first time in 23 years, and says to her, it's nice outside. So after 8,583 days of wrongful conviction, Lamont's out. Uh, He is someone that was able to find his way post-conviction, Um, We've talked about some people where they're just unable to 
live with the reality of what the world is or deal with the demons that were involved with incarceration. Lamont is not that case. He released, he co-founded a nonprofit called Miracles of Innocence, dedicated to help wrongfully convicted. He did this with a fellow centurion exoneree, a fellow Kansas exoneree, Daryl Burton. Uh, He says that we are going to help innocent people come home, but we also want to make sure they are sound and solid ground once they get here. He is also the co-owner and student instructor at Headlines Barber Academy in Kansas City. Uh, In 2017, Lamont was given a full scholarship to Penny Valley Campus and Metropolitan Community College in KCK. In October of 2018, he filed a federal case against Golubsky, that detective, and eight other officers seeking compensation for wrongful conviction. And in March of 2019, he filed state compensation and was awarded $1.5 million in February of 2020. This was awarded to him because Kansas passed new legislation compensating those who had been wrongfully convicted. And we are so very fortunate to have somebody in the room that helped pass that legislation, being you, Dad. And I am so pleased that I had that opportunity, that that opportunity came before me uh, while I was serving in the Kansas legislature. I was a member of the uh, Judiciary Committee of the Kansas House of Representatives, and uh, the bill was was introduced or was filed, and it was assigned. It was, of course, assigned to the Judiciary Committee, and... uh, It was so important to me, Beth, because it was the first time that the Kansas legislature was going to recognize that there are wrongfully convicted inmates in the state of Kansas. And... Well, and I think I read, too, that at the time of Lamont's release, Kansas was one of 18 states that did not have any legislation. So we were already in the minority of not having legislation to compensate wrongfully convicted. Just the fact that we got to debate and we got to discuss the wrongfully convicted in the Kansas legislature was, a, of course, a real big deal for me. And... Uh, yeah, we we had testimony when we uh, when the committee uh, had a hearing on the bill. We had testimony from three exonerees. Who were those exonerees? Lamont McIntyre. There you go. Daryl Burton. There, the other one that helped find miracles of innocence. And Floyd Bledsoe. Somebody else we will be talking about in the future. So, and what great. Of course, it was powerful testimony, um, all of them serving decades uh, for being wrongfully convicted. And when their testimony was over and um, they stepped outside the committee room, I went outside so I could, uh, so I could meet these people. I knew Mr. Bledsoe already, but I certainly wanted to uh, introduce myself to the others and... Uh, it was a big deal. Yeah. February 14, 2018, I was, it was my last uh, legislative um, year. That, that was my last session, and uh, it was certainly a highlight mm. of uh, one of the highlights, one of the few highlights <laughs> of my uh, legislative stint. So, yeah, it was a big deal to me, and... Uh, so the bill. Let's let's talk about the bill. What what Kansas adopted and passed, and it became effective July first of twenty eighteen. Um, for the wrongfully convicted, uh, the state will pay uh, the exoneree sixty five thousand dollars for each year they were imprisoned, plus. $25,000 for 
for each additional year that they were on parole or post-release supervision, or if for each additional year that they were on the offender registry. This is paid out. It, yeah, you. This is paid out initial an initial payment of one hundred thousand dollars to the exoneree, or twenty five percent of the total award, whichever that whichever amount is greater, and then the uh, remainder of the award um, is paid out as an annuity, uh, not to exceed. $80,000 per year. So that's the financial part of it. But what I think what makes the bill uh, somewhat different than other states is that it provides, um, it provides for counseling, it provides for housing assistance, um, it provides for tuition, uh, a tuition waiver for up to 130 credit hours of post-secondary uh, education. That's awesome. So that'll get you four years of college, yeah. won't it? 130 hours. Um, I don't so, yeah, a waiver of two... Di- so I, I think we put good things well, into and- the bill in addition to the financial compensation because these exonerees, one thing that was made so clear during the hearings... These exonerees, once they're exonerated, once that court issues that order, release him, he's been exonerated, they are put outside the the prison, wherever they are, and that's it. Nothing. I mean, when someone completes their sentence and they're released, they are given some meager compensation, they are given clothes. They are given contact people. They're given parole or post-release, which I could speak towards. Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of a reoccurring theme with people that we've talked with is they get out and they have nothing. They have no resources. They have no contacts. They have no identification. They have no, they have nothing. And that's something that parole, when I worked there, we really focused on. It wasn't just about making sure you cross your T's and dot your I's. It was, do you have a driver's license? Do you have a birth certificate? Do you have a social security card? What are you going to do for work? All of those resources we were able to help navigate. And because it's, I mean, it's complicated for me as an adult who's been out and living in this environment to navigate those resources. I can't imagine for someone that's been incarcerated 23 years before the internet was even a thing, you know? And yeah, they're just pushed out the door with no, um, no resources. So certainly, um, yeah, we, we help them financially now. It takes a while to go through the process of obtaining. You have to file a claim, and it has to go through uh, the legislature, and it has to approve or get approval from the attorney general, things of this nature. Uh, so that takes a while. We don't give them a check the day that they they are exonerated. But, yeah, so there's 35 states plus the federal government that have some um, form of compensation for exonerees. Um, and I know we've talked about it before. There is no amount of number that will ever make up for the loss of life. I mean, I mean, when you're 17 years old going and being incarcerated and being locked up all of your 20s and 30s. I mean, I challenge everybody out there, think of what you're doing in your 20s and 30s. You're having your college experiences. You're having your first job experiences. You're getting engaged and married and having babies. All that time is gone, and no amount of money is going to bring it back. And then then Lamont, I mean, these these three exonerees that testified at my uh, Judiciary Committee hearing, they knew each other. They had served time together. They had been on the same cell block. And here they are, three guys that knew each other from prison, having been exonerated. And uh, Lamont and Daryl Burton, you know, hook up with this Miracles of Innocence because they want to help like individuals. Well, and Lamont says that 
he something that he goes to bed every night thinking about is people when they found out he was going to be exonerated and released saying don't forget about me I'm innocent and it stuck with him and he said it haunts him at night because he was one of those guys telling people when they released don't forget about me help me I am innocent what a great story Beth yeah I mean they're um, what one, a great story amazing wonderful men that have really turned such tragedy and heartache into something that's going to help lots of people. And I'm so pleased that I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to uh, meet these gentlemen and uh, thank them for their testimony. And uh, it's a, it's a way that for the state to say, man, we're sorry. Yeah. We're sorry, man. Gosh. Speaking of the state saying I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned that this happened in Wyandotte County. Uh, Wyandotte County is kind of infamous in our community for having some issues with prosecutorial and police misconduct. So much so, we've talked about it before, um, that the DA, Mark Dupree, formed a conviction integrity unit to look at these cases. I mean, it's pretty evident from what I told you about uh, the police detectives having inappropriate relationships with witnesses and the prosecutors knowingly soliciting false testimony out of uh, witnesses. There was a lot going on in that area. They have taken the steps to rectify that, I feel like, and hopefully going forward, they can make a different future. Yeah, from what I'm, and I'll uh, coattail that just with a little bit on. Um, I too believe that there's been some positive changes made uh, in Wyandotte County. It's not um, perfect. It's not like it was. Yeah. Because there were some dark, dark stories coming out of Wyandotte County. Yeah. Um, particular de- detective on various cases, witnesses kept disappearing. I mean, disappearing. Oh, wow. They, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, we don't need to go into that story. But, yeah, it's some really bad stuff. And, uh, but, yeah, I think we've, they've. They're taking the Thankfully steps. have yes. turned the corner. Yes, they're taking steps to hopefully right that situation. I will say uh, the DA that tried the case, Tara Moorhead, is still a practicing attorney. Um, actually, the only person people involved with this case that no longer have their license are Lamont's original trial attorney, was disbarred shortly after his case for ineffective counsel, and his appellate attorney was also disbarred for... Uh, providing ineffective counsel for his clients. So the only people that are no longer practicing attorneys are the ones associated with representing Lamont, unfortunately. Um, Also, the police detective is retired. Detective Golubsky, he is not facing any criminal charges, refuses to talk about the situation. Uh, Some of the research that I did when asked the KBI, they said it's an ongoing investigation. Of course, nothing has been done at this point about him or all of the allegations about his conduct. So another shout out to our dear, dear friend, Jim McCloskey yes. for solving this case. I mean, when you look at this, the round of Reese, I mean, he went out and investigated this case. Nobody had investigated it before him. He went out and did hundreds of hours worth, worth of testimony and interviewing that was never done. And he was able to find, by the way, the person they believed to have committed this crime afterwards committed another murder and is currently incarcerated. Monster? Yes. He's incarcerated for a murder. But not for this crime? No, he's incarcerated for a murder that occurred after Donnell and Donald's murders. So there's another, yet another victim in all this scenario. That and Midwest Innocence Project, they were a part of getting him freed too. Very cool. Very. Any final thoughts? I don't know. Good story. Yeah. It's always, it's nice to have these stories and their individuals are able to come back out into society after being gone for decades and somehow manage to not only survive, but thrive because that's difficult for us that have been living in it this entire time, let alone being removed for it for decades. I just, 
I, I like hearing those type of stories for sure. Although that's not, that's not the, always the case, but this one definitely is. Okay. Anything else? I don't think so. <laughs> I'll make just a, uh, comment about this, uh, other podcast. Yes. Yeah. Junk science. Yes. CSI junk science. Yes. It's called. You're wrong about. You're wrong about. Um, yeah, I th- I think about that a lot. We do we do our episodes and our stories, and they involve forensic testimony of junk science, bite marks, and things like this, and and uh, hair analysis. And yeah, I I just hope we get the word out to people, and that maybe some of our listeners will get called to jury duty. And maybe they'll question it when yeah. they hear this testimony and that it's all science-based, that they'll, they'll question it. One of the things they talked about in that podcast is uh, dogs. <laughs> the use of dogs, particularly in finding drugs. Yeah. And uh, I loved one of the comments that was made is that a the dog might tell you where the drugs are, but he can't tell yeah. you how sure he is. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Point I love too. that. Yeah, yeah. You, he, he can't tell, can't you, tell how you how sure. Yeah, how he can't sure give you a percentage. So anyway, yeah. Listen to the podcast. Listen to the podcast. Oh, and one other thing I want to mention, Beth. Just this past Sunday, as we're recording this, just this past Sunday, HBO has a series called Last Week Tonight. Mm-hmm. And this past Sunday, the uh, subject was wrongful convictions. Oh, awesome. I love it when this topic is in mainstream media and is getting out there. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not difficult to find that episode on YouTube or... Um, HBO Max or any of yeah, the Yeah, go to HBO. Yeah. Uh, but it was just broadcast this past Sunday, last week tonight with John Oliver... Yeah, talking about wrong, wrongful convictions. So that's cool. That's all I had, Beth. Okay. If you want to reach out to us, we're Cleared Podcast on Facebook or Cleared Pod on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Apple or Spotify. Like, share our podcast. We really want to get the word out there. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't feel please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you. Until next time. Assault City Sound Production.